Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. Welcome to this percolated media Halloween special as the three men in a retrospective podcast review all of the movies in the Exorcist saga. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Join Garrett. I haven't had a bath for three days. And Matt. Why me? As they bring back horror film scholar Mick Duffy. I wouldn't be concerned about reason, Major. He's a scholar. And they review each film, one exorcism at a time, all leading up to a review of the brand new David Gordon Green directed entry to be released this Halloween season. <laughs> it burns! Does the original Exorcist deserve its title of being the scariest movie of all time? I cannot tell you it's forbidden. How will Matt and Mick react to their first-time viewings of The Exorcist 2? And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. And why are there two versions of the fourth sequel? He will seek to poison your mind. The answer to all these questions and more... Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Pazuzu, prince of the evil spirits of the air, take me to Kokumo. Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist. Released May 20th, 2005. Budget on this was $30 million. Box office, $251,495. Did not make a killing, and this was directed by Paul Schrader. Our first Paul Schrader joint. All right, boys. Well, we had the Rennie Harlan go at redoing this particular film. It didn't do all that well at the box office. Little did Mr. Harlan know that just a, a year later, we would be seeing Schrader's version up on the screen. Matt, as somebody who came into this not really knowing about these two films and their differences, what were you expecting when you put in Paul Schrader's version of the Exorcist prequel? At the very least, I understood the rationale for getting the director that they did. When Randy Harlan was given an Exorcist movie, I briefly mentioned this in the last show, that kind of just seemed like, all right, who can we get that can just point and shoot and do some cool imagery when needed? Paul Schrader, at least, when you look at his work, regardless of if I like it or not, I tend to be very hot or cold on what he does, whether as a writer or director. A lot of his work, in fact, most of it, in fact, involves... A person, mostly men, having to deal with some kind of struggle, whether it's a uh, base instinct, urges, mental health, you know, their own demons. Uh, that, that's prevalent through a lot of his work, as is his, shall we say, critical look at religion. He's made several movies about that. First Reformed comes to mind uh, within the last five, six years. So I think on that level, he's actually an appropriate choice to do 
a, a movie centered around a character who is experiencing a crisis of faith that I see more as a justification. But given the fact that I either love Paul Schrader's movies or I hate them, I really wasn't sure what to take away from this, given that and also how the beginning was not something I would recommend in a particular sense. So how I didn't know how much of this was his actual vision versus just a, a mishmash of other elements, or whether or not the foundation that they were building upon should have been condemned to begin with. I thought Paul Verhoeven did the ones about base instincts. No? Okay. Mick, first of all, yes. you had seen this one before this particular viewing, correct? No, 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 I hadn't. This is my, oh, uh, this is my first time. I, uh, yeah, yeah, I'd been, I'd been told by someone, um, by a, a, a film academic I know who is very into horror cinema and was also a huge fan of Paul Schrader just to, to avoid it. He, he said it shouldn't work either as a Schrader film or as a horror film. So I'd, I'd kind of taken that console on board and, and had just been avoiding this film for the last 15 or so years. So you just avoided it, huh? Well, a lot of people avoided yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, avoided isn't even the word. It's, you know, I don't think it turns up on television terribly regularly. Uh, it's, you know, you'd have to go out of your way to seek it. That's the thing. You avoid Oppenheimer if you didn't want to see it, right? Yeah. But no, um, this this is an easy film to miss in terms of visibility as a product. Easy to miss. And I had mentioned this story last week, but I had edited it out of that show because I wanted to save it for this particular show. And that is when Harlan's film debuted, Schrader did see it in theaters, and his date was none other than William Peter Blatty. And they sat and they watched it, and about, I'd say about 15 minutes in, Schrader looked at Blatty and said, you know, if this keeps going like this, I might have a chance of getting mine out there. Movie ended. Sure enough, he went to the brass, and they did give him another $35,000 to brush up on effects and maybe add a little bit of musical cues. This is a score done by Angelo Badalenti, but even though he you know, he was able to get that money, he could not get Badalenti to do the cues that he needed, so he got a band that was recommended to him by his son <laughs> to do a lot of the score of this. Yes. So he did all that, it was released, and kind of I would feel... As a final fuck you from the studio to Schrader. They released it against Star Wars Episode 3 in 2005. Did not do well, as I mentioned, in the box office. And you know what? If you take what they spent, not only on this, but on Harlan's film, they lost a shit ton of money, didn't they, Matt? Yeah, and that's why I think it's taken so long for this new movie to get off the ground. I mean, let's be honest. Outside of the first movie, the Exorcist brand was stained to such a dark level with the heretic that I feel like every movie that's come out since has been handicapped by the expectation of the original and just the reputation of the second one. And you compound that with the fact that you have this movie, which is technically a a redoing of the movie that was already released, even though this one was the quote-unquote original version. Screwed up on all fronts, but it's not a surprise why this one didn't do well especially when you're released against Star Wars and seven months later. This should have been like one of those uh, like Shout Factory type of releases or, or like a, spe- a special feature on a DVD. I don't know if they, this not to preview my thoughts on the movie, but I don't know if this justified like its own separate theatrical release. Mm. Maybe it was contractual on Schrader's part. I don't know. I think the thing you have to remember is this sort of a, in the old days, the DVD market is so strong. You know, and the DVD market for horror cinema is very strong. So... 
I, I mean, I, I remember this getting a big theatrical release on my side of the Atlantic, but I think it might have been one week in, like, the uh, local art house cinema. But once you put this thing on DVD, I mean, the bunch have shifted some units, right? Simply just because of the brand name and the fact that it was that era when people bought lots of DVDs. So you think this was just pretty much released, given a limited release, and then released just because yeah, they wanted I, to sell units? I, yeah, a limited release still has the cachet of having been theatrical. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I would imagine this turned a, well, maybe not a profit overall, once you consider all the uh, losses they have from making two films nobody went to see. But I'm sure it did some numbers on shiny disc. All right. Well, with that being said, I mean, if anyone wants to hear the backstory of how it got taken away from Schrader, I went into all of that last week. Go back, listen to that show. That's where it's all detailed. I'm just going to go from this right into the plot and not preview my thoughts. We don't have too much of a plot to discuss here. (laughs) (laughs) We start off in Holland, 1944. A Nazi is saying a soldier was killed and he wants answers as to who did it. They ask Marin and he says that there is no murderer here, but the major doesn't take too kindly to that answer and he threatens to shoot 10 of them until he gets an answer. When Marin protests, the Nazi asks him to choose 10. He says to shoot him and the Nazi shoots a random one. He grabs another and says that God isn't here today. So here we have a priest version of Sophie's Choice right here at the beginning. And Matt, this is exactly what you were talking about, that Schrader does so much in his career, a crisis of faith, right? Yes, and he fixed my issue of making this a reveal in the beginning, where it came off as shock value, among other things. Here, at least it's at the forefront, so you know where all of this stems from. And I think my compliments on this movie are going to end there. (laughs) Wow, it's a two-hour movie, too. Oh, oh yeah, like... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say something on the record right now. This is one of the biggest endurance tests you have ever made me watch on this network and the previous network. And I watched the five-hour Shining miniseries. (laughs) And you watched seven Transformers films, too. It's not as bad as that, don't get me wrong. But this movie takes the idea of methodical pacing. I guess his methodology is if you cut off your own legs and arms and have to just nudge yourself from your couch to your bed. That's what this movie felt. So you're saying you agree with James D. Robinson then, who pretty much looked at this cut, hated it, and was like, you know what, we're going to do a a slicker version of this. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think they were right to retool it into a shitty mid-2000s type of horror movie. Wow. Mick, where do you stand, sir? How do you feel about the beginning of this? Um, I... I don't mind it. I I, I quite like it. There's one issue. It's very backlotty. Yeah, good point. We've got a lot of nice location filming later on in this movie, and we've got lots of nice, I guess, bespoke sets because they did all they did the they did most of the exteriors for this in Morocco, and they did their main sets and those interiors in Chinichita mm. in Rome, and I'm guessing those were all things they built for it. But this set, this sort of standing kind of generic European town set, it feels overly familiar. I think I've seen this set before in, uh, you know, dozens of sort of a uh, modestly budgeted European films and TV shows about World War II. Mm-hmm. For me, it just feels a little bit fakey, just simply because of that set. And it feels out of sympathy with what we see later on as well. I mean, you know, it's not a fatal flaw, but it, it feels, it, this bit feels pulpier than the rest of the film is. Um, what I would say is, just about Morgan Creek and James G. Robinson, is these people didn't do their due diligence. If, if you study film, you'll eventually be um, asked to read Paul Schrader's uh, breakthrough work, which, 
you know, in cinema terms, that's Taxi Driver, but in his career as a film scholar, it's his book, Transcendental Cinema, which is about stillness in cinema, and specifically about the films of French director Robert Bresson, who uh, Schrader takes a lot of cues from. And Bresson very famously made the film Diary of a Country Priest, which uh, Bresson does a better take of with um, First Reformed, you know, a film about the inner life of a man of God. Uh, but with this one, yeah, it's these guys should have had alarm bells. Somebody in the office should have said, um, are you sure you want to let the guy who's the world's biggest Bresson fanboy <laughs> make a movie in which the main character is a priest? Because I could, tell, you know, I could tell you this is what would happen. Yeah. He will approach it in that slow, methodical fashion. And I don't think it's a fatal flaw here, but it is a fatal flaw if you're making a horror film which you wish to market to the public. Marin starts pointing at more people who they do indeed shoot, and we get a close-up of Skarsgård as more shooting is going on. We then cut to East Africa in 1947, three years later, and we're hearing that Marin took this archaeological bent as soon as the war ended after the quote-unquote incident. And of course, that incident has left him undecided on his faith. So this is why he went the archaeological route. He was disturbed by what he did here. <laughs> they explain that, or Matt. Did, <laughs> yeah, or did, or did not do. Yeah. And, you know, this is the problem with prequels. If you can't come up with a good or compelling premise to answer questions that did not need to be answered, then your movie feels unnecessary from its foundation. I mean, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't think Marin's backstory is an interesting enough hook for an Exorcist prequel. And again, I think this one has some really interesting ideas, but it's not horror. And that's the bottom line. This is the problem. It's, it's mm. not really a horror film. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think I'm going to end up defending this film much more so than I thought. Wow. But yes, uh, in terms of fulfilling the brief, Schrader absolutely hasn't. We cut to Marin as we're hearing about six archaeological digs that he's done since the war, and he's looking at some butterflies on a wall. We hear that he's been summoned with Father Francis to explore a sabbatical taken by another priest, and then we're hearing that the Cardinal wants to be sure about the religious aspects being given proper consideration. Marin and Francis, they go on their expedition, and we're watching the Tartana be quote-unquote savages as they tear up an animal. Now, where do they film this, Mick? I mean, is this actually in Africa that they're at here? Do you know? Yeah, I mean, they did six weeks in Morocco. Six weeks in Morocco. Like, uh, oh, okay. Yes, and another six at Chinachita. This is, um, if I'm remembering Trader's uh, commentary, I watched most of it with commentary as well. So, yes, this is a very long shoot, certainly twice as long as Harlan's shoot. So, yeah, there is stuff shot on location, which which I think really helps. Certainly, it's, it's more convincing than the Africa we saw in Borman's Exorcist to the Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the sober daylight horror is certainly better here than The Heretic because it's competently shot. It's at least coherent. But as a prequel, I have to ask this question. It's really hard to put this movie into any sort of timeline because in the first movie, you see him dig up that Pazuzu, like, I don't know, artifact? Yeah. And in the statue, in The Heretic, you see him doing an exorcism of Pazuzu. This one's unrelated but yet somehow they find a way to just put Pazuzu in this. <laughs> but see, they found a way to put him in, but I think Schrader was smart in not having anybody say it in this movie. I think he realizes, like we did while we were discussing those movies, that it's so silly when you say that name out loud. <laughs> so yeah. he's a presence, but we don't hear it uttered. They start exploring the temple, and Marin discovers that though it's been buried, the stones on it look almost new. Emikwai starts giving Francis a kind of tour, 
as he introduces him to his two kids, Joseph and James. We see someone collapse while digging, presumably due to the heat, as Marin spots Cheche on the mountainside. We then meet Rachel, a doctor who gets to the scene rather quickly, and she tells Marin that he's working them way too hard, which is why this guy collapsed from the heat. Rachel says that she had to sedate Cheche a couple weeks prior due to a beating he sustained, as the village thinks that he's cursed. Marin sees more of those dreaded CGI hyenas. <laughs> we have oh, these yes. goddamn hyenas. To be yeah. fair, they did try real hyenas, but they didn't look really good, so they ended up CGIing them anyway. But my God, I mean, I'm going to say the same complaint I said last week. These are fucking lame. It's funny, 15 years later, we have Birds of Prey, and the hyenas look just as bad in that movie. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, good point like the one animal no one knows how to animate <laughs> except for disney when they made the lion king but that's because it was hand-drawn hand-drawn yeah i think you frequently get you know spielberg accepted oftentimes you get these older directors working with cgi and they have absolutely no framework or idea how to incorporate it into the footage or to use any of the other tells that will make us think it's real obviously the hyenas aren't sort of you know um, aren't drastic park quality uh, creations but even then, it's, you know, the, uh, you know, the way in Jurassic Park, Spielberg makes sure we have these shots like the uh, glass of water vibrating so that we know the thing has presence and gravity. Yeah. <laughs> but there's none of that here. They just seem so flimsy. It's not just the animation and the rendering looking bad. It's that there's, there's nothing to tell us that they're real. You know, there's no, they, they don't affect the environment around them. Good point. Yeah, the way it interacts, because you have a scene later on where there's a CGI bull eating a CGI hyena. And because both of them don't look like they actually belong in the shot, it magnifies how bad it is. I mean, some of the effects in this movie, look, the beginning had some shoddy work. But this feels like one of those movies you would watch on sci-fi back when they had original movies, like Mansquito and and crap like that. I mean, the Man-Thing movie that they made with Marvel. It reminds me so much of that. Um, And I feel like they were done just so they could make this a complete release well yeah and like i mentioned in the beginning he only had thirty five thousand dollars for the cgi here it's not like zack snyder where they gave him exactly yeah i'm I'm trying to figure out the exchange rate in my head but i think thirty five thousand dollars that'll get you like a nissan leaf right (laughs) i mean that that's not enough money to do post on a movie that's enough to get you good that's enough to get you a you know a a decent car. <laughs> so much bought a really nice couch with that money. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and to go back to what Mick said, you are absolutely right. Eventually, Matt and I and Adam are going to go into Marvel. We're going to dig into The Incredible Hulk. And when Ang Lee got that Hulk movie, he had no idea what good CGI was. And we're seeing that here as well. Yeah, I mean, this is in that period where you had... It was like you had either the, the tail end of, of quality stuff like Gollum, which at the time was really revolutionary, and then you had shit like you know, stuff like this. And, you know, you mentioned Ang Lee's Hulk. That's a good one. Where it's like you, you either you had polar. It's like good and evil. You had one end of the spectrum or the other with visual effects. Yep. Now, I will say one thing. There is a CGI shot in this. No one comments on because it looks so good. Everyone just buys it. It's outside the buried temple. The rock's in the foreground. That's where Kai Camera's kind of moving past uh, and up and reframing, and apparently the rocks are all CG. The rocks are CG. Yeah, the large sort of rocky outcrop in front of it, that's apparently CG. Oh. So, well, um... That's where George Lucas got that idea yeah, from. Right. Yeah, so, you know, it's... I, I, picture, say, I picture George Lucas watching this and just thinking, he's like, you know, desert, 
I'm just going to make the door bigger in Return of the Jedi. <laughs> I think that's where he got it from. Marin finds Che Che on the ground during a rainstorm, and he takes him to Rachel. She cleans and dresses his wounds and says that there's nothing more she can do for him. We're getting more backstory from Rachel as the generator goes in and out of power. Rachel says that she believes evil is a human condition, something everyone is capable of. So this character is not like Harlan's from the last movie. Harlan wanted to make a movie that had a girl possessed by a demon, a lot like that first movie. This character is here to pretty much spouse exposition, right, Matt? Yeah, someone should have yelled, you know, the the power of screenwriting compels you because th- this movie is so dull that they're, they're and, and so self-serving that she will literally stop the movie to explain the purpose of the movie. It's very straightforward. It's- she says that she also believes sometimes the best view of God is from hell. She says that Marin brought something out of Che Che and that she thinks what he's looking for is here. Schrader then uses an odd technique of showing a floating stopwatch as we're seeing nightmarish images of Pazuzu and wolves. This looks exactly like that old footage they had when screen, t- screen testing Reagan. We have that, and um, yeah, I didn't think it saved us, but uh, Harlan incorporated the Pazuzu image from the first film into his version of this. Uh, so effectively, we don't talk about it, uh, and here it's very on the nose. I, I, you might not even have noticed, but Harlan does a really nice subliminal Pazuzu. Mm-hmm. In his version of this, and it appears in the mirror. There's a scene when Angus Mer- Marin is looking in the mirror after he's woken up after a nightmare, and it's like maybe three frames. And it's subtle, and you know, if you spot it, you spot it. But like with this, it's you know, if you dwell on that Pazuzu makeup design, you kind of see how goofy it looks. It's good for three frames. If you let it extend longer than that, it just seems sort of. Goofy. The dream sequence here, he's kind of going very much for sort of the um, a Salvador Dali sort of thing. He's trying to make it like the um, dream sequences Dali designed for uh, Hitchcock's Spellbound. You know, even starting on the ticket, the, the, the stopwatch, it's very Dali. So um, you're, th- you're thinking I mean, he's going for Hitchcock. Um, you know what? Throughout this, this is the thing. I kind of expected him to be a bit Robert Bresson in terms of tone, but he's doing a bunch of a um, harking back to classic Hollywood. In this, a lot of his framing is very John Ford, which which we'll get to with the very last shot of it. Yes, yes, for sure. A lot of his framing and the way he also um, shoots his outpost, he shoots it very much the way a John Ford cavalry western would be shot. There's even a shot of the sort of the tribal chief seeing uh, Marin arrive on the jeep in the distance, and it's shot exactly the way, you know, um, John Ford would show sort of an Indian chief on a rocky outcrop looking down and seeing settlers approach. It's very much that. And with this, yeah, he's, he's doing a Dali's work for Hitchcock kind of thing, and it doesn't work as well, and it seems odd in a film in 2005. Very much so. A little bit of surrealism, too, with this dream sequence. Like, I feel like he's he's tapping into, like, the Jodorowsky playground, but he doesn't go far enough. And honestly, that's, no. that's the person I'd hire to make an Exorcist prequel. Get Alejandro Jodorowsky to do there it. There you go. Rachel then unwraps Che Che, and she feels like he's better. She offers to make his leg better, to which he agrees. Meanwhile, Marin and Francis, they head inside the temple, and we're seeing the normal imagery we've come to expect in these movies. All the religious imagery and questions of a higher purpose. Francis also takes a liking to the rocks, as Marin hears dripping water. He then asks for more men. From afar, Che Che starts feeling very uneasy as Marin goes deeper and deeper inside the temple. So he's feeling them as they go in the temple? Uh... It's like some Jedi shit where you can feel their presence, 
I thought of that too. Like I felt a disturbance in the uh, in the force, <laughs> as if a million theater goers were watching this movie and they were suddenly <laughs> silent because they had fallen asleep. Mick, you're kind of into this, huh? You know, I was expecting this. That's the thing, right? I was expecting this. Uh, you're expecting this. this the, you're expecting this difference in opinion. Or you're expecting this exact movie here. No, I was expecting a an Exorcist prequel that's explicitly a homage to a Robert Bresson film and is paced like one. Okay. So I, I didn't have a problem, but I think for everyone else it must be... Um, I, I once had this horrible experience where I thought I'd bought orange juice, but I bought a carton of mango juice, and I had it in my fridge and thought, yeah, I'm just going to just chug down a delicious glass of orange juice right now, and it was mango, <laughs> and I just felt ill, Right. <laughs> And I think I think that's I think that's the thing here. If you were expecting orange juice, this is you're going to feel ill and queasy. That is one of the most brilliant metaphors I have ever heard. <laughs> I mean, it's appropriate because you know to go with the fridge metaphor. This movie will age you like milk. <laughs> yeah. Marin is giving reasons why this temple was buried as Francis sees blood stains and concludes that people were sacrificed here. Because of course they were. Yes. It could have been, could have been a work accident. It could have been yeah. just a bad paint job. Nope, we go straight to murder. Straight to murder. Great way to convince all these locals that Christianity is a symbol of hope. <laughs> the first thing you said is, yep, people were killed here. We then see that cattle have killed and eaten the hyenas and more bad animal CGI is shown. And not just bad CGI, but weird compositing. Yeah, the compositing was weird, weird, too. Yeah, good point. Marin points Rachel to the imagery depicted on the temple walls, which, of course, includes Lucifer, source of light. Uh, I like this scene. I do. I, you know what? I kind of do, too. I'll go with you on that. Okay. There's something strange and mystical and quite lovely about it. You know, the, uh, it's one of the few bits where he's gotten Badalamenti to write some original score, uh, and the music's really, really sort of... The music... It's strangely appealing and draws me in. And the imagery is interesting. It's weird. They're talking about what should be a big scary evil thing, but it's also somehow fascinating and reassuring, I guess, because if you genuinely believe that Satan exists, you also have to believe that God also exists. So it's a... Um, yeah, no, I, I like the scene. I, You know, I can't even quite put my finger on it, but it's some combination of the uh, the beautiful murals and the lovely music, and it, it just being such a strange info dump. Rachel concludes that Marin is wrecked with guilt and that the reason she's been confiding in him is because of something she saw of him. Yep, I bet she has. She saw the final cut. <laughs> we, then, we then see a detachment of military sent by Francis, and then we see the arrival of another doctor sent to help Che Che. The military start taking a handful of precious stones they see in the temple as a birth is taking place, as well as a surgery on Che Che. There's a lot going on here, boys. I mean, he goes from literally nothing happening to everything happening at once. Yeah, and it's pretty abrupt, considering how ponderous everything that precedes it is. I think the, the sticks are kind of escalating. It, it's strange. He's trying to shift gears, and it feels abrupt because the rest of the film is very measured in his pacing. I will say this, though, the um, British soldiers stealing from a, a valuable archaeological site in a place they've colonized, that's a, um, yeah, that's extremely believable. Uh, you know, um, everything in the British Museum in London is something that they stole from some other country. <laughs> we see the result of what happened to the soldiers in the temple. How do you guys feel about the fact that we don't see this happen, only the aftermath? It seems like he's trying to do the opposite of Harlan. Harlan was very visual. Very showy, sometimes graphic. I think Schrader's trying to take a more restrained approach for 
almost the entirety of this. Yeah, Neil, I think this is very much in keeping with Friedkin's and Velati's approach to this kind of thing. Where, you know, the first and the third film, we do get deaths happening off screen, and us learning about them later. And, you know, I don't think it's as effective as those pictures, but I, I do like the idea that, oh, well, we've no idea how these men were murdered, but they are now dead. I find that scarier than I'd find, you know, some kind of overthrow sequence of them being stalked or ripped apart. The doctor asks Marin what is actually happening here, and Marin offers to show him the fig that he's been working on. The military starts questioning whether the Turkana were responsible for the killings, and Marin says it's impossible due to the styling to the stylings of which they were killed. The Turkana say that what happened was the two soldiers that were stealing jewels at the temple started arguing, and one killed the other before killing himself. This pisses the major off, though, and he says that that's impossible, and warns Marin to not choose the wrong side, while also throwing him in, throwing in his face to remember what you owe. So we got a little bit of story going on here, right, Matt? Yeah, there, there's more here than. I would have expected, given how bare bones the beginning is. Yeah. Though, um, I, again, it, you know, I didn't think I'd say this. I think Harlan maybe has a better take on how bad colonialism is than Schrader. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, who'd have thunk it? But um, well, the Demetrius obviously annoyed, and he's not terribly sympathetic, but I think this film very much soft petals the sort of uh, colonialism as an evil. Meanwhile, Cheche's leg is healing much faster than expected. The military returns to demand the actual truth instead of the fear tactics that they've used, and he shoots a Turkana villager when he doesn't hear a different story about what happened. Okay, yeah, this is the weird thing. When he shoots a villager, is it just me, or is it framing meant to intentionally evoke that really distressing photograph from the Vietnam War? I think he's going for that kind of imagery. I'll go with that. Oh, yeah, he's also trying to show that us colonists are the real evil on the, on the planet. We're getting hints of Francis having a nightmare before he's woken up by Marin. We're seeing Francis express guilt over asking Granville to show up and help, and then gives Marin his cross asking Marin to pray, as prayer is all we have in times like these. Francis starts regurgitating Marin's findings and words right back at him and pleads with him to refine his faith. And then Francis starts teaching his class, and Joseph and James, they say that they've been told Jesus Christ killed the women outside. He corrects them by saying it was actually the British major who did it. And this is when a Turkana savage comes in and wallops Francis before killing the kids. This I wasn't expecting. Yeah, this was very, uh, I gotta check my notes, because I, I did write, I wrote this down, and then realized it was a pun five minutes later, and felt terrible, but I'm gonna say it regardless. That was very hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I didn't expect this to happen. It's probably the most shocking uh, incidents of violence in the film. Francis starts hearing chants with Che Che in the room, which startles him. He sits and prays for Che Che before putting the cross on his head. This is what causes Che Che to wake up. This time the demon within has red eyes. Does Schrader just not care about series continuity here? Or are they trying to get away from the yellow eyes given Dahmer had yellow eye contacts, presumably after killing his victims after watching part three? We're going with red eyes here. Is something stupid? Is it stupid hill to die on? But I was kind of pissed at well, this. This was 05 and uh, Chancellor Palpatine had the yellow eyes. That was taken already. But that was coming out the same time. It wasn't. It, it wasn't already out I'm just, yet. You know, I'm just joking. Oh. I don't understand why. Okay. And I uh, look. I got a lot of problems with this movie, and I'm the last person to bitch about coloring. <laughs> That's true, Mr. Color. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there. But I will complain that while I appreciate that the person who's possessed is not a, a who done it or who's it gonna be like it was in the beginning. The way Chi Chi is just periodically dropped in and out. I feel like that was more than enough of the narrative focus 
that everything else feels like a distraction. Well, Schrader says this interesting thing in the commentary, where he says that when the script was brought to him, he could see immediately that the way Cheche's possessed, you know, his disability gets better, and he looks more radiant. It's the exact opposite of what happens with Reagan. Yes, possession for Cheche is like an incredible sort of physical rehabilitation and makeover, and Schrader says that he realized that that isn't scary, but he found the idea so interesting that he didn't raise any objections to it not being scary because he just wanted to do it. And um, yeah, I'm kind of again. This is a um, this is producers dropping the ball. I like it. I mean, I, I like it as a kind of a um, twist on the established rules. Yep. I mean, why would a demon possess a body then immediately go for sort of corruption of the flesh when you could just modify it or improve things? I actually quite like this, but you know, Schroeder's right. It's not scary. No. Depends how you do it. Because the the argument I use against that not being scary is you look at David Cronenberg's The Fly. Before shit goes downhill and his body like starts breaking down, he is borderline superhuman and thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. I think that's kind of that can be scary, especially for the person watching it. Here you're saying like turn to Satan if you want to learn how to walk again. God, we gotta do that movie eventually. Oh, we gotta find a way. <sighs> Marin and Francis, they go to Cheche, who is almost fully healed, and Francis convinces him to become a full-blooded Christian. Meanwhile, Granville wants a message to be sent to Marin, that he understands what he's gone through all these years, and this is when Granville puts a gun to his chin and shoots. Mick, I think this is tied for the most shocking bit of violence in the movie. I was not expecting this. It got me. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I I suppose, I guess it's quite a strand in terms of the bloodletting here. Yeah, you know, it's, it's the most restrained. A person shooting themselves in the head. I've seen in a film. That's a good point. Which, yeah, uh, there's, yeah, there's there's almost a, there's very limited blood here. Yeah, again, I wasn't fully expecting this moment, and it does change the dynamic and up the stakes. Yeah, it's definitely surprising. But you know, for a movie that's rough, the movie's pretty tame, all things considered. I mean, there, there's instances of of shock, but in a way that makes it no better for me than what Rennie Harlan did with the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Marin is then told by the sergeant that Granville was well-liked by his soldiers and that he needs to tell the Turkana to stand down. Francis starts what I'm assuming is a baptism on Cheche as he turns devilish one more time before collapsing. He then knocks Francis in slow motion right into a statue. What was the point of this shot? Was this left over from Harlan? <laughs> we see a full slow motion shot. Oh, oh this was like the Paul W.S. Anderson moment. Oh, God. Uh, I, All right, I Mick, like get, this defend it. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I liked it. It's strange. It is. You know, it's it's weird and off-putting. And you know, by this point, super-powered, demonically possessed person flinging someone against a wall is a cliche. And it's uh, by this stage, this is already a thing that the Evil Dead franchise has played for kind of you know for comedic effect. So I quite like that it's come up with a strange way of doing this. Again, it's not scary. But it is odd, and I'll sometimes take odd as a consolation prize. Yeah, I mean, the heretic was odd, but, uh, you know, I would leave that prize at the county fair and never pick it up again. (laughs) The Turkana say that they all need to leave, and if the British leave now, they will be spared. Francis says that Che Che is possessed, and he needs to get into town to fetch a book of rituals. Which you can just buy at any gift shop. (laughs) Apparently. Apparently. (laughs) 
Francis Pants. Pick it up the Necronomicon at Walmart. <laughs> you know what? You probably can at this point. Francis passes by Marin and says Satan is real before leaving to get the book. Meanwhile, poor Rachel is right across from Che Che as he says that he is perfection. We see Francis strung up with arrows through him as he says, it's him, it's him, as Marin sees another hyena right there. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny at this point because obviously Francis with his arrows. And I, don't, I don't know how help you guys are on your sort of a religious art. Uh, I passed religion back about 20 years ago. Yeah, there's a lot of Renaissance-era paintings of St. Sebastian, whom, whom, because he was a Roman but a Christian at a time when Christianity was outlawed, he, he was sort of betrayed, and uh, the Romans shot him full of arrows. So there's lots of paintings of... There's lots of very homoerotic paintings, I have to say, of Sebastian as kind of an extremely buff young man with sort of arrows piercing his flesh, which is hilarious because if you read the story properly... Um, he survived that, and later they just bludgeoned him to death, and there are no paintings about the bludgeoning of St. Sebastian. No, there's not. But, um, <laughs> no, but it, it seems going very old, much like... You can find it. <laughs> no, no. It seems like he's very much kind of echoing that, uh, that popular religious image. Uh, well, Francis is playing a much bigger role in this one than he did in Harlan's version, isn't he? Yes. They take Francis inside, and he says that he's begging for his last rites. Francis says the boy needs an exorcism, and there's no time to ask for permission. I look, that, that's in every movie. I know. The process of getting an exorcism. Like, like that, that is the Tatooine of this franchise. <laughs> the, 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 we need to get, you know, go up the chain to perform an exorcism. They might, they might as well post it on, like, fucking LinkedIn. <laughs> Wanted exorcism. Apply, apply here. And every time it's not very well told, too. Oh, and they suck at it every yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> like I'd want my money back I, I have a story about that when we get to next week We then see the temple open up As Marin walks in looking for Rachel He finds her right underneath a skeleton And he wakes her up She says that she wants to go back And that they can help each other Che Che shows up in this madness And Marin tells Rachel to get out Che Che says that Rachel's past has now been destroyed And then he reveals that he was the one Who rolled out the stones for Marin he says that Rachel betrayed her friends and sold her body for food. And Che then says that the one thing Marin can do is cease to care. Marin then, I guess, suits up, so to speak. Yeah, he goes yeah. get his, uh, his proton pack. Yeah. And jumps. <laughs> As Emiquai, remember him, says that Francis killed his son. Marin makes his way back to the temple, this time in his priest garb, as more hyenas part ways. He starts blessing the inside of the temple as a floating Che Che asks if he thinks that uniform could save him. He throws holy water his way as Marin is sent into a wall. More chanting happens and we're getting more distorted imagery. Che Che offers uh. the opportunity for Marin to undo the sins committed three years ago as snow falls and here we are. So it's fitting we're recording this so close to the holidays because now we have a Christmas carol exorcist. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When did this well, when did this turn into the ghost of Christmas yet to come? <laughs> even though it's already happened, and this is the dumbest thing in the movie. I got to talk about this right now. For the big end all be all villain, Bazooka's really not all that evil as he's presented in this movie. He heals Chi Chi even after he is exercised. The only people he murders are the corrupt colonists. <laughs> Who's the bad guy again? Well, uh, I'm just gonna say. He was kind of really rude and a bit of a dick about somebody doing sex work to survive. I mean, you know, dick move for Susan. <laughs> 
Mick, what are you thinking here? Are you going to offend this the way he's kind of they're they're showing him at this exact moment again? Okay, two things are sort of happening here. One, the the narrative's kind of getting you know there's a um, there's a bit in the New Testament where Satan tempts Jesus. It's it's like in Matthew chapter four because God, I, I went to Kathy Boy School and I remember this stuff, even though I I could be using my brain to store more trivia about horror cinema. But it's kind of that. But it's also very much like another Paul Schrader project, Last Temptation of Christ. Oh God, he's where, trying you know, to dig uh, that up again. Yeah, because it's you know the whole sequence yeah. in that where a um, uh, Satan in the uh, in the form of a small English girl, is a uh, showing Jesus the life he could have, right? It's that. It's also, I, I guess, we want to link it to something, um, uh, you know, outside of religious media. It's it's also a bit like, do you know the um, classic Alan Moore Superman story for the man who has everything? <laughs> yeah, no, it's that. It's 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 tempting someone with the life they could have or could have had but they'd have to choose a less virtuous path, and they'd have to make less sacrifices. It's that. I, I don't mind it here. It's weird, because obviously nothing like this has happened previously in these films, but there's precedent for this in other media. So uh, I'm on board with it. It's fine. Wow. Yeah, I mean, the the last temptation, temptation of Christ thing is obvious because, yes, he wrote that movie, or wrote the screenplay at least. And also, much like Jesus, you wake up after this movie's done three days later. You're like, holy shit, what happened? <laughs> In this reality, Marin shoots the general as he gets shot himself, and many more individuals die. We are also getting imagery that put me in mind of the cover of Stephen King's Night Shift, as we have this hand being unwrapped with this bandage and a whole bunch of weird shit going on here. Marin tells Che Che that this earth is not his dominion. Ah, title drop. As, yeah. As green and fire. Did you, men- did you mentally insert the gif of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the TV? <laughs> As, as green and fire fill the screen, Rachel walks in and hell is breaking loose. Che Che spits out some horribly rendered CGI bugs. Oh my god, these were bad. Yeah, uh, you should not be echoing Brendan Fraser's The Mummy. That was six years before this, and those effects are about on par. But we're getting bugs like we got in The Exorcist 2, so we're bringing those, those back. Yeah, this movie pulled a lot from The Heretic, I noticed. Yeah, it does. Especially with Pazuzu being able to be like a copy of a real person, which he did in The Heretic and he does here. Mm-hmm. So at least, again, they're, they're not pretending that movie doesn't exist like franchises do nowadays. Correct. Marin keeps chanting, and he casts the demon out. This scene of Che Che's evil spirit disappearing, it kind of put in mind of a movie that the three of us have covered, Nightmare 4, where like, the, the spirits are all disappearing as the bad guy's being destroyed here. Marin assures the Turkana that the demon is cast out, but they wish him strength as the demon will now pursue him. The Major then tells Marin that if he's asked about what happened, they won't get anything out of him. Rachel then gives Marin the cross and asks if he'll write her. He responds with a kiss on the cheek. He walks out as smoke fills the screen and credits roll on Dominion, the Exorcist prequel. Boys, how do we feel about the ending? Uh, at least it didn't feel the need to do like a shameless tie-in to the first movie. Whereas, like, I'm going to go investigate X, which is the spot that the first one opens with. Or there's a, you know, he meets someone named McNeil. There's nothing that cringeworthy, thank God. So I'll give it points for that. Uh, again, it's the uh, the final shot here. Is it's funny. Um, it's a much more effective final shot than the final shot of Harlan's film because obviously it doesn't involve shonky green screen work. But also, it's an effective final shot because um, it 
I mean, it would be generous and call it a homage, but you know, it's a lift from the end of John Ford's The Searchers. It's very much the final shot of The Searchers. It's not it's, a shame. Uh, no, no, no. It's, uh, it's the, the final shot of the searchers. Okay. You know, the uh, our, our hero turning his back on the uh, you know the whom uh, he can't really have and um, walking back out into the wasteland or you know the wilderness. He doesn't have the uh, environment in the background. So obviously, he's um, he's on a studio set in Italy, so there's lots of dust uh, kind of obscuring it. But yeah, it's the idea that he's turned his back and walking through the doorway. And it's you know it's completely that. And he says that throughout his commentary about how he um, how he liked that Stellan Skarsgård has a kind of John Wayne walk. And um, yeah, this this is it. This is him him doing that. It's not a film I expected to be <laughs> to be homage in an Exorcist prequel, but you know I'll, I'll take it. Oh. it. It works. I wasn't expecting. And that. the movie's over, which is good. <laughs> so even you were feeling the length at this point. Um, I felt the film had nothing else to say or do. So I'm glad it stopped. All right, boys. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give Dominion, the Exorcist prequel? Mick, you go ahead and go, sir. You know, I'm... Okay, I, I kind of have to do this two ways. I have to kind of assume if you were expecting a horror film and an Exorcist prequel, in which case this is like a three. However, if you're wanting a Paul Schrader movie, this is a seven. You know, it's 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 not autofocus. It's not blue collar. It's definitely not hardcore. But it is uh, better than cat people. Aww. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'm. It's not really horror film. It's a strange, often meditative, occasionally sublime, sort of theological, theological character study with light thriller and suspense elements. So seven, but with all of those caveats. Seven with some caveats. All right. Matt? You know, for a movie that was uh, picked to pieces to put a Frankenstein's monster known as the beginning together, I kind of wish they left this body buried and never dug it up in the first place. If you're an Exorcist fan, you know, you get to pick your poison with these two prequels. And look, this comes from a, a very studious director, the writer of the first two Terminator movies, you know, the good ones, and the author of the Alienist books. Uh, you know, it's a pretty interesting trio of creators for something that's ultimately very mundane and for the most part, pretty flat. I, I, I've said my piece on the pacing, calling it lethargic is a compliment. And it's nowhere near as bad as The Heretic, but I sort of put it on par with the beginning just for, for different reasons. You know, Schrader's absolutely committed, but I sort of have to echo what Mick said that, you know, it's not a horror movie and that's not, you know, for something called The Exorcist, what that precludes to the closest thing you get is a cgi snake coming out of a sarcophagus that's the the quote-unquote scariest thing in the movie and that's just because it looks so bad and also uh from a technical standpoint for a movie that takes place in the desert nobody ever looks really dirty and i can't tell you how many times that pisses me off watching movies especially ones like this it's tame for the most part but i also think it's it, it doesn't feel repurposed enough to warrant being its own release so you know, no sense of mood for me. It, it, it's just a, it's also just a slog to get through. Good thing daylight savings time just happened because you, much like four o'clock <laughs> when it rolls around, you're going to be asleep by the time the daylight part of this daylight horror movie is finished. So I'm going to give this the same score I gave the beginning. At least I think the same score. I'm going to give this a four on ten as well. Four on ten from uh, my uh, trusted colleague. Uh, you know. I'll say this. I think this movie is better than Exorcist the Beginning. But that's like saying World War II was better than World War I. <laughs> They're both disasters. 
while doing research for this, I read a really great quote that summed up these two movies perfectly for me. It was from somebody who worked at Morgan Creek. They said that Schrader's movie is a better film. Rennie Harlan's is a better trailer. And Robinson went for the better trailer to release first, which, you know what? Given that this was coming out 14 years after that third film, you were trying to draw more people in. You wanted to get those flashy gorehounds in. I get it, but that was not a good movie. I think this is a better movie, but I got to go with Matt when I say it was a freaking clock watcher watching this movie. I was tapping that time bump so much. I was just like, how much longer do I have left here? And it's not from lack of effort. I do think Skarsgård's doing some good stuff here, but he's not really well supported. The writing's a tad better than last week, I guess, although this seems repurposed, and that means that Schrader did his work. He did rework the script a bunch, and you know it was taken from him. His editor was fired. They brought in Sheldon Kahn, who worked with Spielberg for many years, and him and Schrader got into it, and then Sheldon Kahn was kicked out uh, there was so much discourse going on i thought maybe i could watch this movie and think you know i think schrader was in the right he wasn't he would do this movie much better in 2018 when he did first reformed this is it's better but not much better in that case i will give it a 5.5 boys the end of the prequels means it is time to do the new release that just came out, done by David Gordon Green. We're finally coming to the end. Next week marks the end of our Exorcist retrospective. You know, I know pretty much what I'm going to say because I'm not going to pretend we all haven't seen it. It's been out a month and a half at this point. Oh, I, I haven't seen it yet. You still haven't seen it? I, I haven't seen it. Oh, wow. No, no, I was uh, I was, uh, I was, was waiting till I oh, kind okay. of watched all the other ones. All right. Um yeah, so I'm. Uh, I guess I'm gonna go see it tomorrow. All right, so you're seeing it tomorrow. What are you expecting, Mick, when you uh, go see the new David Gordon Green Exorcist Believer? Uh, I, I imagine I'm gonna feel the same way I sort of feel about his Halloween films, which is that I wish I could have we could have early David Gordon Green back. I'm not a fan of his horror cinema so far, and it's weird to me now that he's made more horror films than a couple of people whom frequently appear in documentaries as talking heads. Uh, you know, he's made more horror films now than John Landis. Oh, Jesus. That is depressing. Which which breaks my brain when I think <laughs> yeah. about it. It's odd. I think David Gordon Green's an interesting filmmaker, but I think all of his films find him channeling some other filmmaker's style. And I think that worked out great with his early arthouse films. I, I'm a huge fan of his debut, George Washington, but it is very definitely trying to be a Terrence Malick movie. And I think his last art house film, Prince Avalanche, is, is a remake of an Icelandic art house film. And I like his TV comedy work. But God, some of his features, like certainly the last 10 years of his work, has kind of just left me cold. So uh, I'll go into this with an open mind, but I'm, I'm not expecting greatness. All right. Well, slight preview of Mick over here. Yeah. Now, Matt... I know for a fact that you and I have been biting our tongues so hard, I think they're almost down to the end. Uh, what do you expect when we talk about Exorcist the Believer next week? Well, I also haven't seen it for about a month. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know what to expect because every time... So I've seen all three of his Halloween movies, and I've seen most of his other movies. And my thoughts on all three of his Halloween movies... I'm not part of the consensus on any of them. So I, I walked into Exodus Believer not knowing what to expect. Having said that, the trailers did nothing for me. 
I thought this movie was really poorly advertised, and there was nothing that I saw that looked particularly inspired. And the fact that I saw Ellen Burstyn in the trailer, I thought, how much money did they have to pay her to get her to come back to this? And it turns out they paid her a lot, and she did good things with the money. I knew walking in this was going to be a trilogy, so I always have that hurdle to overcome. But I've been pleasantly surprised by some of these, you know, these franchises that get brought back after years. I mean, they did it on television with this very property. But at the same time, my fear for this, like, I thought worst case scenario for this movie was going to be like those last few Terminator movies, where they kept trying to bring it back, but they should have just put the defibrillator away and let let the heart rate just stop. Because I, I don't think this needed to be made in my head when I walked into that theater. But I guarantee you some executive said, maybe it was Green himself, you know, The Exorcist is going to be 50 years old in 2023. Let's do a new movie. I don't know if that's a good enough reason to spend $500 million on a freaking IP, but that's exactly yeah. what Blumhouse <laughs> did with this. They, they spent half a million dollars on the rights alone. Unbelievable. Look, like I said, I've been biting my tongue with this. I had my own expectations going in. I will reveal all of those next week. I will say, Matt, you and I have not done those Halloween movies yet. We will get to them eventually. But I was not too enthused going into that screening. Because if there's one thing that watching these last couple Exorcist films have taught us, it's that they can't shock us anymore. So my thought was, what could he do that was different? What could he do that could, I don't know if shock is the right word, just do something different, do something that could rework the property into something that, as Matt has said, is something that could be a good use of this property and this IP. They're supposedly making three films. We'll discuss whether that's going to happen next week. But I had my own expectations, and that's all I'll say until we get to that film. Also, tune in next week because we will preview the review we will do after. It's going to be something we have also been building up that we started last year. And then, as Matt said, we we are going back into a galaxy far, far away to bring us into December. And then, my God, we just... So much more that I can't don't really want to get into now. But boys, thank you so much for joining me on this journey through The Exorcist. Matt, I'm sorry it's been a slog for you. Mick, I'm glad it's been a pleasant surprise for you. And hopefully it ends good for all of us. Until next week, when we finally get to the end with Exorcist the Believer, I believed God let us decide between podcasts and evil. I chose podcasts. Evil happened. Thank you, gentlemen. What harm could there be in his being baptized? A great deal. Those people hate and fear Chechia. Do you want to expose him to further danger by having him join a religion they equate with evil? Oh, say it. Say it, Mariner, can't you? The work of Satan. It's the work of man! Why can't you accept that? Because my only concern is the eternal soul of that young man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Join us next week for an entirely new review. And if you would be so kind... Please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. The sour is mine! It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
I like plays. The good ones, Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. And if you like this review, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice. For we have individual reviews such as Knock at the Cabin, The Black Phone, Megan, as well as additional blockbuster franchises like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean series, Stephen King's ongoing collection, and many more. He has work to do much more. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? Edited by Garrett. Once the wings have brushed you, you're mine forever. Voiceovers by Adam. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. As Marin spots Cheche on the mountainside. Cheche, Chichi. How, how do I say that name? Is it Cheche? McGuffin. I think it's Cheche. <laughs> McGuffin. <laughs> the power of Christ compels you! Mick, anything to say about the CGI here? No. Okay. No, it's him. <laughs> All right, I'll move on. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, uh, Lord, I, I think you frequently get... And he shoots a Turkana villager when he doesn't hear a different story about what happened. We're getting hints of Francis. Ha- okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Mick. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, this is the weird thing. The power of Christ compels you! Francis is playing a much bigger role in this one than he did in Harlan's version, isn't he? Yes. Matt, is that a good thing or no? I mean, would I rather sit in traffic or, you know, have explosive diarrhea? I don't know. <laughs> kind of what you're asking me. The writing's a tad, tad better than last week, I guess, although this seems repurposed. And that means that Schrader did his work. And, you know, he did end up 
God, that scared me. <laughs> One of the cats just grabbed a toy. It scared the fuck out of me. Um,